long for today. Uh, we'll be in Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. It's uh, page 1268 in the Pew Bible in front of you. So if you didn't bring a copy of the Word today, if you'll grab that Bible right in front of you, turn to page 1268. We're going to look at Acts chapter 12 today. So as Pastor Tony preached last week with uh, Peter and Cornelius, and you'll see the story of Peter uh, recounting uh, that experience in chapter 11, and uh, then we get a little bit more information about the church in Antioch at the end of chapter 11. And so we're going to jump into chapter 12 today, and so the topic of our message today will be unstoppable, and uh, again, so fitting that the resurrected king is resurrecting me because uh, for the benefit of you and me, that is unstoppable. Amen? And the, uh, the transformation that God begins in our life when we commit to follow Him uh, and the things that God does and commits to do on earth are unstoppable. And so that gives us encouragement this morning. So we're going to study Acts chapter 12 this morning. So before we go, let's uh, ask the Lord to bless our time this morning and uh, that we would hear and see what we need to see. God, we bow before you today, and God, we declare our dependence upon your word. God, that uh, without your word, Lord, we don't know how to live. God, we don't know uh, how to act. And Lord, with your word, we know everything that we need to know. According to your word, it declares that you have given us everything that we need for life and for godliness. And so this morning, God, as we stand before your perfect word, God, we ask that you speak to us. God, we know that in today's world that you speak through your word. And so, Lord, as we listen today, I pray that you'd give us ears to hear. God, I pray that the scriptures would be uh, alive and breathing into our souls, as your word says in Hebrews chapter 4. And God, that we would receive it as it is spoken today. So, Lord, I pray that somewhere between what I say and what the listeners hear today, that your Holy Spirit would intervene. And God, that you would apply to our hearts the things that we need to know. And God, I pray that we would leave today different. We would leave challenged. We would leave motivated knowing that you are an unstoppable God and that your purposes will come to pass. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Acts chapter 12. And so we get to uh, Acts chapter 12. Now up until this point, we've seen a lot of attention on how God has promoted the gospel through the Jews, right? As a matter of fact, uh, one of the big points in chapter 11, uh, chapter 10, chapter 11, that Pastor Tony brought out last week was that uh, now Peter has the vision to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And for the benefit of you and me, that's a hearty amen, right? Because that's what we are. We're not of Jewish descent, and so uh, we've been grafted in. And so we are certainly grateful uh, that that was made available. And so in chapter 10, uh, Cornelius and Peter both have this experience that God is telling Peter, you need to include the Gentiles. And so up until chapter 10... It's been primarily a Jewish audience. Now we get to chapter 11 and we begin to see this shift take place to the Gentiles. Now it's interesting to note that very, very little is spoken about Peter after chapter 12. Now we'll study chapter 12 today and everything is primarily about Peter today. Uh, but it's interesting that we don't really see <clears throat> or hear much from Peter after chapter 12. Now we do know that Peter ended up being crucified. I'll bring some of that out here this morning. 
Uh, so we do know that, but it wasn't in chapter 12. It's one of the reasons that the chapter is so amazing. Uh, but we see Peter in Acts 15 uh, when he comes back for the Jerusalem Council, and that's one of the last times that you're going to see Peter. Now, we begin to see the missionary journey start in 13 with Paul, and, uh, and so basically the rest of Acts commits the time to that, and of course, we'll go through that, and then the majority of the rest of the Old Testament are the epistles and letters that were written from Paul to Gentile nations or Gentile churches. And so now in chapter 12, what happens is that we're kind of getting a look back, you know, kind of like a throwback Thursday or something. And so we're moving from the gospel in Antioch, and then we're reverting back to the church at Jerusalem. And so Peter, of course, is, uh, you know, he was uh, with Cornelius in chapter 10 and the first part of chapter 11. And now we see Peter's in a different spot in chapter 12. And so let's begin reading in verse 1 and find out where we're headed. So in verse 1 it says, About that time that Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church, and he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. So this is John and James, the sons of Zebedee. Uh, they were one of the first followers of Jesus, right? And so uh, you'll remember in the early accounts of the gospel when Jesus was calling the disciples, they were one of the <clears throat> very early ones that began to follow Jesus. They were also the ones that were privy to some things that not everybody was privy to. You know, we talk about D groups a lot around here, and one of the things that we mention with D groups is the model that Jesus used, right? And so Jesus spoke to the large crowds which today we're gathering corporately. Uh, Jesus also had 12 disciples, and so we have small group. We have Sunday school. And then Jesus also had a very private group of men that not everyone was privy to exactly what happened in his life, except for Peter, James, and John, right? And so Jesus had these three guys that were at the Mount of Transfiguration. And uh, there was a couple of times where Jesus was going off to pray, and he would tell the disciples, stop here, and he would take Peter, James, and John with him. And so there were some things that they were privy to that other people weren't privy to. And so here Herod has James killed. Now it's one verse that we see here about James. Herod is the one who has him killed. Now, Herod is famous in Scripture. You'll recognize some of this. Herod the Great was the one who attempted to have Jesus killed as an infant. Uh, his son, Herod Antipas, was the one who beheaded John the Baptist and was the one who uh, Jesus was sent to for trial. Now, I personally believe and am nauseated at the fact that John the Baptist was beheaded for the silliest of reasons. Uh, it's just every time I read that, it makes me angry. Uh, so here his family is known for doing heinous things. Herod Agrippa, here in chapter 12, he's the grandson of Herod the Great who tried to have Jesus killed. Uh, we'll see later on in the book of Acts, Herod Agrippa II was the one who, if you'll remember where it says that Paul almost persuaded me to be a Christian, if you read that in the King James. And so this family is a family that is certainly out of favor with the Romans. And so he's trying to bring them back in to favor, which he's also, he married into the Jewish lineage. And so he's trying to play both sides of the fence, if you will. And he is at war with God. I mean, that's pretty 
obvious, right? That here is this family that has done everything that they possibly can to thwart the plan of God from the very beginning to destroy Jesus, which we know that that plan certainly did fail. And now he is mindlessly, his family has pointlessly murdered very, very good men. And James is the recipient of one of those acts. And so here Herod is doing everything that he can to flatter the Jews, but it is certainly all an act. Herod is in it for what Herod can get. That is all Herod cares about. His ambitions are certainly political. He is not aligning himself with the Jews because he's a purist and he believes that uh, the Old Testament needs to be upheld and that you know we need to wait for the coming Messiah. That, these are not the reasons why Herod is doing what he is doing. Herod is trying to position himself for future benefits. And so he had James killed because he said that James was inciting a group to go astray from what the Jews considered to be true worship. Now, according to the Pharisees and the Sadducees at this time, true worship to them was what was acceptable to them, not the Old Testament. And so they had certainly changed that. And so James becomes the first apostle to be martyred. Now, it's believed uh, that a few things happened around James's death. And I'll share those with you here shortly. But as we think about James dying and we read in verse 2, he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. So just a few words here written about John. So we have 10 words that are written that declare the death of one of the disciples, one of the followers of Jesus. Now, here's a question that I want I want to ask you, and on the back of your handout, you'll have the opportunity to discuss this in small group this morning, but have you ever asked the question, why? Why is it that James died? I mean, James, I mean, he wasn't chosen. Jesus chose James. James didn't, Jesus didn't choose James because he thought James wouldn't persevere to the end. He didn't choose James because he thought James uh, couldn't handle it. He knew that he would empower James to accomplish the mission that he set forth. All of the disciples, for that matter, every one of them were failures just like you and me. But yet, because of the Holy Spirit, they had hope. And so here's James, a man that was chosen by Jesus, that spent three years with Jesus. Imagine Jesus being in your D group and being your leader for three years, right? I mean, you want to talk about spiritual growth, right? And so here's James. And he spent three years with Jesus, and then all of a sudden, James is whacked with the sword. And we look at this and we think, man, that is what, how is that possible? Could God not have stopped that? I mean, it's happened to you. And man, we read this about James, but it's happened to you and me as well. We know people that have been godly people that have passed away. We know people that have passed away prematurely. We know people that have passed away tragically. We know situations that have happened. And we look at those situations and we ask the question, why? How in, in the world could this be possible? You see, this James was, as I mentioned, the brother of John. His brother went on to write the book of John. He was John the disciple, uh, greatly, greatly used of God. Uh, he was best friends with Peter. I mean, this guy had a pretty good resume, if you will. He was one of the first followers of Jesus. And so the death of James gets a verse 
And yet earlier in the book of Acts, Stephen, the death of Stephen, gets a whole chapter. You know, you just look at this and you say, now what, what is this telling us? Is it not that God couldn't save James? Well, of course it is not that God couldn't save James. It is that God chose not to. Now, it's very difficult in the midst of those situations to understand that. And I'm sure that John didn't want to hear all of the right things, right? He just, he needed to grieve. He needed to work through this. The same thing with Peter. The Bible says in Psalms chapter 2, this will come up on the board. It says, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Every single thing that happens, every second of your life, every breath that you take is ordained by God. As much as we want to believe that or not, it is absolutely 100% true, which we'll see here in chapter 12. And so I want to encourage you this morning with the first blank on your handout that no wicked act, not even the slaughter of the righteous, takes place apart from the sovereign will of God. No wicked act takes place. So this seemingly nonchalant, pointless murder of James was used in the kingdom of God to bring glory to God. Now, again, it seems difficult in the midst of those situations to understand that. And so tradition has it that as James was being led to slaughter, that James shared the gospel with the guard who was guarding him. And the guard that was guarding James repented He apologized to James, and he converted to follow Jesus on the spot. And so because of his confession of Jesus as Lord, he was killed with James. And so the consolation for our hearts as we read in in chapter 12, verse 2, is why did James have to die? Well, if for no other reason, it was that that guard would have an opportunity to know Jesus. And so we see that God sovereignly is over these situations. You see, what we hear in our world today, unfortunately, is that uh, there are those that teach that it is always God's will to deliver us from sickness, from tragedy, and death. And that is 100% false teaching. That you can't declare because of your faith that you will get better or you're not getting better because your faith is not strong enough. That it is our faith that determines our actions. That tragedy or sickness will avoid us if we have more faith. That is 100% not true. And there are many people making a lot of money on TV declaring that false lie. And so for you and for me, we have to know that God is in absolute and total control and that if bad things happen, or rather when bad things happen to us, as we see James being murdered, Peter's best friend, John's brother being murdered for seemingly no reason, they had to, just as we have to, hang on to the fact that we believe in the sovereignty of God and that at the end God will make all things new. The resurrecting king is resurrecting me. Amen? And so in verse 3, when 
uh, Herod saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter. So he thought, well, if that worked, well, if I kill Peter, I, boy, I'm going to be the most famous man alive. And so it was during the feast, uh, during the days of unleavened bread. And so when he had seized him, so he arrested Peter, he put him in prison, and he delivered him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. And so there's, depending on when he was arrested, seven or eight days here uh, that Peter spent in prison. And so verse 5, so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. And so now Peter has been arrested. The situation seems pretty dire. Wouldn't you agree? James has just been killed. Peter has now been arrested. Uh, We are back in Jerusalem. uh, And it seems that the furtherance of the gospel is about to be stopped in its tracks. Right? It seems that way. I mean, Peter was the mouthpiece for Jesus, right? We see Peter preaching all throughout uh, the beginning of Acts. James is killed, so the, the scattering, we don't see, uh, as we'll get into in a second, we don't see Jesus' half-brother James here as well, which became the leader of the church at Jerusalem. And so they're all, they're all spread out. They're all scattered. It seems pretty bad right now. And so the church got together, and they prayed. It says that prayer was made to God by the church. And so as we think about God's sovereignty, I want to, again, encourage us this morning that God's love for us, the next blank on your handout, it is definitely not determined by the circumstances of your life. So whatever circumstances you find yourself in, everybody is born in a different situation. Everybody's raised in a different situation. Some things are good. Some things are bad. For some people, it's terrible, right? I mean, if if you were to give testimony, there's some people in the room today Uh, that had horrific upbringings. Maybe you live in the midst of a very, very bad situation right now. Maybe you have people around you uh, that, that they don't edify you. They don't encourage you. They don't build you up. Maybe they tear you down. Maybe you're in the midst of one of those circumstances, and a lot of times what the devil tries to do, the Bible says that the enemy is the accuser of the brethren. And so what the devil will try to do when you're in that situation is he will try to convince you that it is your fault that you're in that situation and that God doesn't love you because he's allowing you to be in that situation. And that's 100% not true. You see, what the devil's job is to do is to kill, steal, and to destroy. Read it in John 10, verse 10. And his plan, the enemy's plan for your life, the enemy's plan for James's life, the enemy's plan for Peter's life was destruction. And that's his plan for every person in this room. And if it weren't for the grace and mercy of God, every one of us would follow that path and we would self-destruct. We would do that. Every one of us would. So if you find yourself in a tough situation, it might not be because you found yourself there. It might be because you constantly have someone working against you to utterly destroy you. That is his goal, is to kill you, to destroy you, to ruin everything around you. And if you, if you measure the love of God for you based on the circumstances in which you find yourself, you will be completely, completely fooled. You won't understand how God could love someone and yet allow them to be in the midst of situations like this. And so here's Peter in this situation. And you can imagine that Peter's trying to think, okay, now James was killed, <clears throat> Now I'm in jail. The last time one of our guys was in jail during the Passover, it ended in his crucifixion, Jesus. 
So things don't look very good for Peter either. And so as Peter was arrested, the Jews are now very happy about this, as you can imagine. Because in Acts chapter 5, if you'll remember, Peter was in jail. The angel busted Peter out of jail in Acts 5 and told him to go preach. And so if Peter is in jail, well, guess what he's not doing? He's not preaching. And so the arrest of Peter came uh, sometime after his visit. So it, there's some, quite a bit of time that has passed between the visit with Cornelius and then, of course, Peter comes back to Jerusalem. And so now, being that it is Passover, uh, there are no executions that are allowed during this time. And so Herod, much to his dismay, had to wait. Now, I want you to think about our very first point, that nothing takes place apart from the sovereign will of God. You see, the fact that it was the week of unleavened bread required the postponing of any trial or execution. So in the providence of God, Peter's execution was delayed. You think God had anything to do with that timing? His release was then, as we will see, facilitated. Now, had it been any days earlier, as it was with James, Peter would be dead by now. Just like it was in Acts chapter 10, as Peter was praying, at that same time, God had walked 30 miles from Cornelius' house to give him the message that in the vision he received in chapter 10, the angel brought to him that he would receive at the exact time. And so Herod, knowing that he cannot kill Peter yet, he wants to make sure that he doesn't escape. Now, I don't know how big Peter was, uh, but what Herod did to ensure that he did not escape was he placed him between four squads of soldiers. Now, there were four soldiers in each squadron. So if you do some quick math there, there are 16 guys with swords guarding one man, Peter. Now, according to this, we can only surmise that Peter was probably about six foot eight. He probably weighed about 450 pounds, and he could probably bench press a couple of Hondas, right? I mean, if you got 16 guys guarding him, he must be quite the man. And so there's 16 people, two on the inside that are chained to Peter, two on the outside, and in shifts of six hours each, the other soldiers would rotate and they would keep guard of Peter. Now, this was the usual Roman custom. So a few years ago, Melanie and I had the chance to go to Italy, and uh, we actually went to the Mamertine prison. So I brought some pictures uh, that'll come up on the screen. I'll explain to the what they are. So this is the Mamertine prison where uh, Paul spent time in prison uh, and Peter spent time in prison. Now, this is not, this prison is in Rome, obviously. We're in Jerusalem in chapter 12. Uh, but this is very similar to how they would hold prisoners during that day. And so uh, if you'll go to the next picture here, uh, you'll see that there's a hole in the floor that they would lower the prisoners down through the hole. Uh, now, as they would lower them, they would lower them into a bottom area. And uh, again, rem remember, there are three people, Peter and two guards chained to him, that are down in the bottom area. And so if you go to the next picture, you'll see that uh, they've added some stairs that you can get down there. And so with the next spot, uh, next picture, this is the bottom of the jail cell. And so, of course, you know, Rome commemorates everything, and so they've got some inscriptions there. Uh, but this is the bottom cell, and it was probably, I don't know, 15 by 12, something like that area. And so this is the very 
This is the very prison that Paul spent time in. This is the very prison that Peter spent some time in. Uh, Peter's buried in uh, Rome. We went to his grave. Paul's buried in Rome. Uh, we, we went to Peter's. They have a church named after Peter there. And so here's the area uh, to kind of give you some context of the jail in which Peter is in. The next picture shows a little uh, better picture of uh, the hole there in the floor. Now, there was a, a spring in the floor uh, that would well up at random times. And Peter, being the man that he was, would share the gospel to the prisoners as they would come through the jail. And Peter would baptize them with this water that would come up out of the ground. And uh, so it was just fascinating to see that. The last picture you'll see, and it's probably very difficult for you to see, um, is there are writings on the wall. So uh, someone scribbled on the wall. I don't know if it was Peter or, you know, I don't know if they were ordering pizza or what, but someone's marking on the wall there. And uh, so I thought it was really neat to take a picture of that to see it. So you see, Peter is in an impossible situation. He is chained to two guys. He's got two guys standing guard, and then there are 12 other guys standing up top making sure that he doesn't escape. The only way to get out is to go through that hole, and the only way to go through that hole is to go up. Those stairs weren't there when Peter was in prison. So it's impossible. There's no way you're getting out. You see, Herod wanted to make sure there was no way that he got out. And Herod wanted to make sure that, that his friends couldn't bust him out either. So instead of planning, though, for his escape, the church was actually simply praying for him. And so we see in verse 6, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. So Peter, about to be killed, is asleep. He's not sitting up, wringing his hands. He's not trying to convince the guards to let him out. He's asleep. And so here's Peter, sound asleep, not fearing for his life. You see, if you'll remember at the end of John, which is fascinating how this ties together, at the end of John, when Jesus uh, resurrected, and he appeared to, if you'll remember this from our John study, he appeared to Peter. Remember, Peter, do you love me? Yes, feed my sheep. Remember that whole interaction? So he says, uh, then Jesus tells them, remember they had breakfast on the beach, and then Jesus begins to tell them how things are going to go from here. And he, he tells James that they're going to be martyred, so James knows that eventually he's going to die. And uh, he tells Peter what's going to happen with Peter. And this is what he says. It'll come up on the screen, John 21, 18. Truly, truly, this is what Jesus says. I say to you, when you were young, and this is to Peter, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, Peter's not old yet. When you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. So here's Peter asleep. Why is Peter asleep? Peter's asleep because Peter trusts in the words of God. Jesus told Peter, you will die old and people will lead you to where you do not want to go, which is alluding to the fact that Peter will be uh, martyred as well. But he says, you're going to die an old man. And so Peter's sitting in jail and he's looking at his hands. He's like, well, I don't see many wrinkles, so I guess this is not my day. Right? And so he falls asleep. You see, for you and for me, I know a lot of times we worry about the world around us, but until it is God's time for us to be called home, we're not going home. You and I are 10 foot tall and bulletproof until God says otherwise, right? 
And so what we ought to stop doing is prancing around the daisies and worrying about what's going to happen in our life and declaring the fact that we really do believe in the sovereignty of God and that we want to stand for the gospel, even if it means we're between 16 soldiers in what seems to be the end of our life, and yet Peter declares, no, I'm going to take a nap while you guys figure out whatever it is that you're doing right? We ought to be bold for our faith. We ought to stand and declare that we actually believe in the sovereignty of God. There's a huge difference in saying that and actually living that. You see, if you believe that you were 10 foot tall and bulletproof until God chose differently, then you probably would go on a few more mission trips, right? I've heard people say that before. Well, you just don't know. What do you not know? You don't know if it's going to be your time or not. I mean, that's how that works, right? And so here's Peter, he's snoring. And so in verse 7, the angel, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter on the side, and he woke him up, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And then the angel said, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And so if you have kids and you have to get them up for school in the morning, that's the exact same thing you do. You strike them on the side, you say, Get up quickly. You turn the light on, you say, dress yourself, put on your shoes, and then put on your, it's the same thing, right? And so he went out and he followed him, and he did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision, which was not abnormal for Peter, right? I mean, in chapter 10, he saw a vision, so we can't fault him for that. When they passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. Now, this iron gate would have been extremely large and heavy. <clears throat> it was there for military purposes, and it was also there to keep people out. Uh, so we see Peter gets to the gate. The gate opens on its own accord. Verse 11, <clears throat> when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Wonder what gave that away. Was it the fact that you're no longer between 16 guards? Was it the fact that you escaped unnoticed? Was it the fact that the gate opened on its own accord? Or was it the fact that you're now standing free in the middle of the city in the middle of the night? Okay. I'm sure the Lord has sent me. Well, that's good call there, Peter. And he's rescued me from the hand of Herod and all the Jewish people uh, were expecting when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, uh, the mother of John, whose also name was Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant named Rhoda came to answer. And so, isn't it interesting that everything opened for Peter except for Mary's house door, right? I mean, that's just one other door, you know? It, it's believed, you, you can read about it, but they believe that Mary's house was quite large, um, you know, of course, indicated by the fact that it has a gate out front and by the fact that they're all there. You know, most of those houses were very small in those days. And so in verse 14, recognizing Peter's voice, Rhoda, in her joy, did not open the gate, but she ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate, which doesn't make any sense. And so verse 15, they said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. Yeah, because that's how that works. When your angel shows up, it looks just like you. Again, doesn't make any sense. But So Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. Aren't you glad that the gospel gives all the details? 
I mean, that it isn't just, you know, this perfect story, but it's, we got a bunch of goons in the story too, you know, Rhoda, who knows what she's thinking. So here's the church fervently, the Bible says in verse 5, fervently praying for Peter. Fervently is an athletic term that pictures an athlete straining every muscle as he puts everything into a race. Ironically, it is the same word used in Luke twenty-two forty-four, 44, uh, used to describe Jesus' fervent prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. So these guys were praying. Okay, they were, they were praying. You see, the Bible says in Hebrews eleven six, 6, without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Now, I would step out on a limb here and say that nothing in your life happens apart from prayer. And so here's Peter in prison, and they are praying for Peter. They are praying uh, for the furtherance of the gospel and that God would spare Peter, certainly. And uh, you have to believe that they prayed for James as well. So the next blank on your handout, prayer should not be about God's will, but or rather, prayer should be about God's will, not about our desires. The Bible says in Psalms chapter 37, and verse 4, Delight yourself in the way of the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. And oftentimes, you, me, and every other human who's ever prayed has been guilty of praying selfish prayers, right? And we prayed for things that we wanted. We prayed for outcomes that we thought was best. And so you'll have an opportunity to discuss that uh, this morning in small group about uh, the content of your prayer. Uh, but suffice it to say here that prayer should be about God's will. And so when we pray, as they were praying for Peter, you say, well, you know, should I pray for someone to be healed if I don't know if it's God's will for them to be healed? Well, it's okay to ask God for things. You see, what prayer does for you and me is it helps us to understand what God's plan is. It moves us onto God's agenda. And so the church undoubtedly was praying for James as well as Peter. You know, they weren't saying, well, you know, we can, we can let go of James. Peter's a little more important. No, they were praying that the will of God was done. You see in verse 5, they were praying for Peter to God. They were very, very specific in their prayers. We can learn something about prayer here. Uh, that our prayers should be specific. That when we go to God, that we shouldn't say, you know, help the sick people and, uh, you know, take care of all the situations that are bad and, and work everything out for your glory. Amen. But no, we ought to be intentional about praying for specific things because it allows us to be a part of the work that God is doing. And it encourages us, right? Listen, this happened to you. It's happened to me. It encourages us when we pray specifically for a situation and God answers that situation. Amen. That encourages us. And so they prayed specifically for Peter. That's what the Bible says in verse 5. Their prayer was not only specific. In verse 12, the Bible says as they uh, were continuing in prayer, it says uh, they were many gathered together in verse 12, and they were praying. They were continually praying. And so not only was their prayer specific, their prayer was also consistent. Their prayer was consistent. Now, if you will remember in Hebrews, we studied about Noah, and God told Noah to build the ark. And just a few years later, only 120 years, Noah actually finished the ark. You see, God's timing is not our timing. And God's ways are not our ways. And so we can't give up on prayer just because God doesn't answer our prayer immediately, right? 
You see, while they were praying, they were praying for God's will to be done, God was working. Now, the people at uh, Mary's house, they don't know God's working, right? They don't know the details of that. They just know that Peter's in jail, and he's about to die, and, you know, whether or not they've gotten word of James dying, I don't know, probably so. And so they're probably a little distraught, but yet they're continuing to pray. They're continuing to pray. They were very consistent in that. And the answer for them came a lot quicker than the answer for you and I often comes, right? You see, in Daniel chapter 10, Daniel prayed for three weeks before he received an answer. And so what I want to encourage you with this morning is that whatever it is that you are praying for, I want to ask you to be very specific with that. Ask God very specifically for that situation, for that person, for whatever it is that you are dealing with in that moment. Be specific about that. God cares. He wants to know those things. And don't give up about praying for those things. Because you have no idea how or what God is doing as he works in those moments. And so again, our part is not to solve the problem. Our part is not to dictate the outcome. Our part is simply to trust in the sovereignty of God and that he will accomplish his purposes. Amen? And so in verse 17, Peter motioned to them with his hands to be silent. So there must be a lot of people there. And he's like, hey, chill out. And so he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. And he departed and went to another place. Now, obviously, he's not talking about James, John's brother here. He's talking about James, Jesus' half-brother. And so you see in verse 17, he advised them to tell James, if you read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul writes this. He says, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, this is post-resurrection, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of who are living, though some have fallen asleep. Then, this is 1 Corinthians 15, if you'd like to go back and read it, verses 3 through 8. Then he appeared to James. So Jesus appeared to his half-brother James. Then to all the apostles. Last of all, he appeared to me also, which is Paul, as to one abnormally born. Again, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8. So James, tradition has, was not on board when Jesus was alive. James was, uh, he was not... It was hard for him to grasp the fact that his brother was the Messiah. But Jesus appeared to James. And Jesus said, hey, look, James, it's okay, man. I know it was hard for you to believe that, but I love you, and I want you to know the truth. And so he appeared to James. Now, at this point in Acts chapter 12, James is a prominent leader at, uh, in the church at Jerusalem. He was uh, the pastor, if you will, at the church in Jerusalem. And James became very well known for being a prayer warrior. Uh, as a matter of fact, James was uh, in the habit of entering alone into the temple, and he was frequently found upon his knees begging for the forgiveness of people so that his knees became hard like those of a camel. And so it is, uh, again, there's tradition that James, they tried to kill James, uh, later on, and they threw him off the top of a building, and James landed on his knees. And uh, so it didn't hurt James because he had been spending time in prayer. And so I think as you 
as you view the book of James through that lens, you'll get a grasp of why James was so dogmatic about, look, you don't just say you believe, you have to live it. You know, tr- uh, f- uh, faith without works is dead. And so he writes this in uh, chapter 5, verse 16 now of James. Now, remember, Peter says, make sure you tell James, right? And so and, uh, James died in about 62 A.D., which was about 18 years after this happened. But he wrote James, uh, I don't know, a few years after this happened. This is what he writes. He says in uh, James chapter 5, verse 16, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And this, this is what he closes this verse with. He says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Now, do you think, I have to believe that James is thinking back to that night that Peter was rescued. Amen? And and James is saying, now, I know absolutely for a fact that the prayer of a righteous man has great power. Because I saw with my own eyes how God delivered Peter. And so in verse 18, when they came, when day came, there was little no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. Well, of course, how does he escape with 16 people guarding him? And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. If you were a Roman soldier in that day, you were responsible for the prisoner that you were guarding. If he escaped, then you took their penalty. And so he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. This is Herod. And so all the soldiers that were guarding Peter were killed. And Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and uh, Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, so he was high up in uh, the king's court, and they asked for peace because their country depended upon the king's country for food. And so on that appointed day, again a, a clue here, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. So Herod dies, but the word of God increases And multiplies. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. And so we get this story that Herod uh, has the soldiers killed, and then he goes to Caesarea. Now, due to some falling out, he was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and uh, these were to the north. And so what he decided to do to to punish them was to cut off their food supply. And so they obtained a meeting with him through Blastus, his chief of staff. And so Herod stood up, and apparently they were having a festival or something, and they had asked Herod to speak at their festival. And so he got up, and he began to deliver a speech. Now, Josephus, who is a Jewish historian, he gives an interesting parallel event of the account. And so uh, he says that Herod put on a robe that was made entirely of silver, Okay, And so he gets up in front of the crowd, and he has nothing but silver on. If you will imagine, he is wearing nothing but tinfoil. <laughs> I think that's funny. And uh, when the rays hit the tinfoil, uh, it was so magnificent, and the sun reflected so much off of it that they were awestruck of this amazing aura that was coming from Herod. So 
Herod was either carried away or maybe, uh, or rather they were either carried away or maybe they were trying to flatter him, they began to cry out that Herod was a God, the voice of a God and not of a man. So when he did not rebuke them, he was immediately uh, punished and got a severe and violent pain in his belly. Now he died five days later from awful suffering of internal worms. He died at the age of 54. The voice of a God and not of a man. Now remember, remember how James died. James was murdered because James was trying to incite this fellowship of Jesus, right? And remember, they murdered Jesus. Why did they murder Jesus? Because he was taller than everybody? Because he could do miracles? What was the reason? Was it because he was born from the wrong family? No, Jesus was murdered because of what Jesus said, right? He said, me and the Father are one. Remember that? And they said that there's no co-equal with God. And so they didn't believe that he was the Messiah. And he had declared that he had came down from heaven, right? And these were the reasons... It's the same question we see at the trial of Jesus. Why did they crucify Jesus? Because he declared that he was the king of the Jews. Remember the inscription above his cross? And so here's Jesus murdered, slaughtered for the same thing James murdered for the same thing that Herod is doing. What is that? Receiving lordship. Receiving praise of saying that you are a God. Listen, no one could worship Jesus as God when Jesus was alive, right? Because they would, they would imprison them. They would kill them. That was what uh, Paul spent his life doing. Because Jesus wasn't, in fact, who he said he was, they said, right? There's no way the Son of God could come from Bethlehem. How's that even possible? You can't declare yourself to be the Son of God. That's blasphemy. And for that reason, Jesus hung on the cross for six hours one Friday. So do you think that when Herod stood before the people of Sidon and they allowed, they declared that he was a God and he received that worship, do you think for one minute that the God of heaven looked down and said, I'll let that pass? Of course not. If they declared blasphemy against the Son of God and yet murdered him for it, don't you believe that Herod was going to get away with something like that? And so the Bible says immediately he was struck down. Immediately. And he suffered for five days and then he died. It's fascinating, isn't it? We see at the beginning of this story that James is dead, Peter's in jail, he's about to die, and everybody is in an uproar. Herod is victorious. But now we get to the end of chapter 12, and all of a sudden, Herod is no longer alive. Peter is no longer in prison. And the Bible says that the Word of God is multiplying and increasing. So I want to give you a few takeaways this morning. The first thing that I think is so glaringly obvious, but certainly is worth us declaring today, it is that it is never man's agenda, but clearly God's agenda that prevails. It is never man's agenda, but clearly God's agenda that prevails. You see, that ought to encourage you because whatever situation that you find yourself in, even when it seems as though evil is winning, it is not. 
At the end of the day, only what God allows is what happens. God is absolutely in control no matter what the world may say, no matter how much turmoil we find ourselves in. And I agree, it seems to be as bad as it could be. But I'm not in control. And I don't see the whole picture. And I don't understand how all things are working. And I I wouldn't have understood in the moment while James had to die. And I wouldn't have understood why Peter had to be put in jail. And I wouldn't have understood why James, Jesus' half-brother, wasn't praying with Mary and John Mark in their house. I wouldn't have understood all that. Why did he have to go hide? I don't know all of those answers, and neither do you. But thankfully, there is someone who does. And he has an incredible plan. And it was written from the foundation of the world. And God is not shaken by the things that happen today. And he's not afraid of anyone who may be alive. Because remember, God is supreme. God is eternal. God rules over all things. And so if nothing else, what this message ought to do for us is remind us that we serve a sovereign, supreme king that is ruler over all things. And we can either choose to believe that and live by it just like Peter and sleep in the midst of turmoil, or we can twiddle our thumbs and be stressed to the max 24-7 and wondering how all this will play out. It is clearly not your agenda. It is clearly not my agenda. It is clearly God's agenda. You see, if Peter is writing this story, Peter doesn't go to jail. If James is writing this story, James doesn't die by the sword. If Herod is writing this story, Herod doesn't get eaten by worms, right? It is not man's agenda. It is God's agenda. The chapter opens with James dead, Peter in prison, and Herod triumphing. And yet it ends with Herod dead, Peter free, and the word of God triumphing. For you and I, we can certainly be reminded that the kingdom of man is frail and weak. But the kingdom of God is eternal and unconquerable. The next blank on your handout. Our kingdom is frail. Look around. Our kingdom is weak. Look around. I know it is unfortunate but common that we base everything that's happening on politics. But that's not how things work. God's in control. He's in absolute control. And although that may be the hottest iron on the fire, maybe that's the biggest fire in the, in the wilderness right now, But it's not the thing that controls everything. It is God who controls everything. And so we have to remember that God is eternal and that he is unstoppable. He is unconquerable. And no matter what Herod tried to do, he did not smother out the gospel. You see, man resolved to pray. In verse 5 we see that. In verse 12 we see that. And yet it was through prayer, the very thing that God gets all of the credit for and we get no credit for is where God worked the most, right? Peter's friends didn't get together and say, hey, look, remember you read earlier in the Gospels, Jesus asked, who has a sword? And Peter says, I got one, right? And he told him to put it away. Just hang on to it, put it away. So they they had weapons. They had swords too, right? The, The guards weren't the only ones with swords. And so Peter's buddies could have gotten together and said, hey, look, you know, Peter, remember Peter 6, 8, 4, 50. So if we could just get to him, we can help him get out, right? They could have come up with a plan. They could have said, look, I, I know we can get more than 16 people to rush the jail and we can get him out of there, right? They could have done that. They certainly could have done that. But yet what they chose to do was to pray. And so they put everything on God, 
They said, God, we are in this house. We have no way of getting Peter out, but you do. And so, God, if it's your will for Peter not to be murdered, we ask for you to do it. We ask for you to release Peter. So they prayed for God to do something that only God could do. You see, God works through our prayers to make us dependent upon him. This is what brings God the most glory. He could have easily, easily rescued Peter. He could have easily rescued Peter many days earlier, right? <clears throat> he didn't have to wait till the last day. You know, what's the, what are the angels doing? They're sitting around playing cards, and then he was like, oh yeah, I was supposed to rescue Peter. I better get down there. No, I mean, you see what I'm saying? How silly we, we think through, like God could have said, okay, Peter's in jail, let's kill Herod, and then Peter can walk out. He could have done that. He could have said, okay, well, I'm going to rescue Peter on the third day of the feast and not on the last day right before he's murdered. He could have done that. But have you not noticed in your own life that it typically doesn't happen that way? Right? That you don't pray for something to happen and at the very beginning of the problem or the situation that God solves it and then you don't have to deal with any turmoil or you don't have to depend upon God or wait on God. That doesn't happen, right? The way that God works is God, God created us to be dependent upon him. And so the situations that we find ourselves in is that oftentimes it's the 11th hour, right, before we're rescued, before God comes through, before God does something. And what that causes us to do is to what? To press in, to listen just a little bit closer, to be a little bit quieter, and to trust a little bit more. Amen? That's what happens. He could have easily rescued Peter earlier, but he sent the angel the night before the execution. Why? Because clearly God's agenda prevails. Number two, even the enemy's most destructive actions cannot stop the power of the gospel. Even the enemy's most destructive Actions cannot stop the power of the gospel. As we talked about prayer today, undoubtedly there's people in your life that you've been praying for. There's people in your life that are far from the gospel. The enemy's plan for your life and for your friend's life that you're praying for is destruction. It's separation from God is to mess up anything and everything, to try to move situations, to try to make it as terrible as possible. But yet even the most destructive actions can't stop the power of the gospel. You see, you're here this morning because the unstoppable power of the gospel. That there was a point in your life where you were riddled, that I was riddled with sin. And that I was doomed, right? That I was just like Peter. I was in the jail cell. I was chained in my own problems. I had all kind of stuff hanging on to me. I was in darkness and there was no way for me to get out. I couldn't even see the hole above me, right? You were in the same spot. And were it not for Jesus reaching down and shining light in your cave, right? If he didn't put light in your jail, if he didn't unchain you just like you did Lazarus a few weeks ago, if he didn't say loose him and let him go, you'd still be there. I'd still be there. But God, rich in mercy, 
Because of his great love for us, that he commended his love for us, that while we were sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. And so what happened here is that the power of gospel, the power of the gospel prevailed. Why? Because the power of the gospel always prevails. And so if you think in your life that you've got someone who is so far from God, or maybe you're here this morning and you say, I am so far from God, there's no way God can save me. Well, you're wrong. Because the gospel can reach the farthest limits of anyone. There's many testimonies in this room who were, there were people that were absolutely running 90 miles an hour away from God, and yet God completely changed their direction. Because that's what God does. He comes down into the jail cell, right where we're at, in the midst of our darkness, where there seems no way out. And he rescues us, and he brings us out, because the power of the gospel cannot be conquered. That's the gospel that you follow. That's the gospel that I follow. Tomorrow morning when you wake up and you get dressed for school or for church, or or rather for work, and you go out into the world and you see all the darkness around you, you can know and declare and live based on what we've already read today and all the things that you know is that the gospel that lives inside of you is unstoppable. Because what 1 John 4, 4 says is greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. So what if, what if, what if we started living like the gospel was unstoppable? That the gospel could permeate anywhere. That, oh, well, you're not allowed to share the gospel here. Well, you know, am I? Can we stop the gospel? Oh, well, they'll never listen. They'll never come to church. They'll never uh, receive anything that you say about Jesus. Well, will they? I mean, could we say that about Paul? There's no way. You're wasting your time. Don't share your faith with Paul. He'll kill you. Will he? Right? Because why? Because the gospel is unstoppable. And so just like Peter, we're all hopeless, but God sovereignly worked in our lives to bring us to salvation. The gospel cannot be stopped. And what is so encouraging about the gospel, one of the, one of the many things is that If he doesn't, if I don't do it, he will use someone else. Right? And so I want to be a part of that. God's not looking at me and saying, Matt, you got to do this, man. I need you. You got to do this. He wants me to be a part of it. But guess what? He can use any of you. He could use anyone because the gospel is unstoppable and it's not contingent on me and it's not contingent on you. It's contingent on him and he never fails. And so the most destructive actions won't stop the gospel. And last but not least, number three, God does not exist to make a big deal out of us. We exist to make a big deal out of Him. That's what our life is here for. That's what you were created for. You ask the question, why did God create me? What is my purpose in life? To make a big deal out of Him. We believe that at this church so much that it's the fourth step on our path, right? To know God to join community, to multiply, to be a part of a D group. And then what happens when you do that? You begin to make God known. I mean, we believe it so much that we have signs around our church facility that we say that's the reason we exist, to make a big deal out of God. And so Peter was in prison. Peter didn't go to the prison and say, guys, let me tell you, or he didn't go to Mary's house and say, guys, let me tell you, 
you're not going to believe this. You have no idea how tight those chains were. I haven't eaten in three days. Listen, you, it was terrible. I was so afraid. Oh, my gosh, I heard James died, and I was shaking. I was trembling. I was No, what did he say? Let me tell you what God did, right? Because he wasn't there to make a big deal out of himself. He was there to make a big deal out of God. Amen? And that's the reason that you and I exist today. You see, unfortunately, we're all like Herod. We all crave and we relish the praise of others. We do. We have to be careful against that. We have to guard against that. Herod loved the praise of the people, but Peter refused the praise of others because he recognized that all praise belongs to God. And so I just want to encourage you as we wrap up here this morning is that God created you to be an image bearer, to make much of Him because you possess something that is unstoppable. You have the Spirit of the living God inside of you, and as a follower of Jesus Christ, the power of the gospel will prevail. God has an absolute perfect plan down to the second for you and your life. And you will not pass away until God deems that appropriate. There is an appointed time, as we read. The Bible says it is, an, it is appointed unto man once to die. You and I, at some point in this life, will expire but it will only be because God ordained it. And so until that day, we ought to live like we are, unstoppable because the power of the gospel resides within us. Amen? Let's pray as we finish today.